0: This is episode number 28 with James Newcomb. Coming up. We were getting
1: notes and I looked up in the grid and I realized this is what I was going to do for the rest of my life. No matter where it took mm-hmm. me, no matter what I did, whether I became famous whether I or not, this was what I was going to do. This was what I was going to pursue. I was working with, you know, the, the biggest movie star and, you know, we slapped each other in the combat class over and over again. It was, you know, it was, it, was, it was impressive. Every time I am in a play, at some point, I hear that speech over my shoulder. I hear, you know, like, you need to concentrate a little more. You need to buckle down. You need to work a little harder. It's not the end of the world. It's not, yeah. it's a play. We're going to tell this story tonight. And we want to tell it the best way that we can. The readiness is all can apply to so much, so many
0: things. If you're looking for what it takes to be an actor long-term over the course of your life, then you've come to the right place and you're going to really enjoy this episode. Today's guest started in the theater at a very young age, felt adrift and wasn't exactly sure what he'd do as a young man, and ended up working for years at some of the best theaters in the country. Hey there, this is Nathan Agan, and welcome to the Working Actor's Journey, connecting you with lifelong professionals. Today's guest is Jamie Newcomb, an actor who spent 14 seasons with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, is a founding member of Shakespeare and Company, was an inaugural company member of Denver Center Theater, where he remained for seven seasons, and is a skilled fight choreographer. This podcast is designed to show you how the work is done, what the realities of the working actor life are like, and to share all the different ways actors have come to this career. There is no one path and no single answer. We want to learn from all of those further down the road, to shorten the learning curve, and to discover what helps and what doesn't when it comes to having a lifelong career as an actor. Our guest today, Jamie, has been working as an actor almost his entire life, first as a kid with his mom directing local shows in Denver, and then with over 40 years as a professional. In addition to the theaters previously mentioned, he has worked in major roles at the Utah Shakespeare Festival, Chicago Shakespeare, Shakespeare Santa Cruz, the Old Globe, and the Goodman Theater. He has received a Denver Critics Award and a Drama Log Award for his work, as well as the Oxford Society Award for Artistic Excellence for his performance in the title role of Richard III at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Now, with all this Shakespeare talk, if you're looking to develop your skills and stand out with auditions and in shows, our next virtual rehearsal room is in June 2022 acting the role with Susan Angelo and Beau Foxworth on The Macbeths. Plus, we just added a Q&A evening for those who register with Jessica Kubzanski, Artistic Director of the Theater at Boston Court in Los Angeles. Beau and Susan have played Lord and Lady M multiple times across the country, and they'll work with both actors and audience to dive into these great parts. You'll look at what makes these characters tick, how their relationship informs their choices, and the demise of each of them. As always, the rehearsal room is a supportive, collaborative, and relaxed environment where you can learn the skills to serve you in any medium. Witness how pros actually do the work and then practice with scenes and monologues. Whether you're serious about acting or just a fan of these characters, don't miss this unique opportunity to explore. Registration is open and seats are limited, so head to WorkingActorsJourney.com to find out more and sign up. And finally, if you're really enjoying this podcast, you can become a patron. Starting at just $2 per month, get exclusive access to behind-the-scenes and additional content, and be part of taking this show to the next level. And for those who join at the co-star level or higher, just $5 or more per month, you also receive a 10% discount on our workshops and programs, including our current workshop with Susan and Bo. Okay, back to the chat with Jamie. I actually connected with him via past guest Tony Amendola, who recommended Jamie for the workshops we've been doing. When I saw Jamie's resume, I just thought, holy cow, this is such a no-brainer to involve him. He has the kind of career that I know me as a younger actor would really want, and even now, it'd be nice to have played certain roles he's done at some major theaters out there. In 2021, the Goodman released a filmed version of Measure for Measure with Jamie as the Duke. Now, I knew from his resume that he was accomplished, but from the first scene of the play, I was just like, oh, this guy is really good. Just blown away at what he could do. And for those of you who have been lucky to see him either on stage or in some of the workshops we've been doing, including just playing the King of France in King Lear, you know what an amazing actor he is. With the career he's had, I'm very honored to bring him onto the podcast. We had quite the marathon talk, which now seems to be the norm around here, and we dive into a lot of nooks and crannies of his life. It's a great chat. I'm glad he and I did finally cross paths, and he's become a good friend. So here we go with episode number 28. Please enjoy my chat with James Newcomb. How did your uh, self-tape go by the way you know I, I was, it was
1: great i i sandwiched it in because you know I, I i realized in my text to you that it looked like i was teaching a class on putting makeup on yeah, but no. it was a makeup class for when
0: i was oh, sick. oh okay
1: i was uh, like, I'm, I'm, like sta- ma- I'm
0: like man there's there's nothing this guy can't do
1: no it was a stage fight makeup class but as it turned out i went down to do this teach this class and the the First two people came early and I had learned it this morning. It was like three lines. Mm. So we just shot it in front of a, you know, a drape in the uh, rehearsal room real quick and then set it off. So I, in, I, I, it went fine, you know, how those things are, you know, yeah, they know sure. instantaneously if right. you're what they're looking for. So
0: is this is this something out of LA like like network TV or or I mean, you know, you don't have to give any details that you you know don't want to or Yeah,
1: it it it's for um the Ed Helms sitcom yeah it was for uh, Rutherford Falls. I don't know if you know okay. that show but it's a little bit like Parks and Recreation. Oh okay. Small yeah. town, lots yep. of characters, an officious mayor, you know, that's hapless and he's oh, always right, putting sure, his sure. foot in it. You know that that kind of thing. So
0: and are um, you are you focused more on, you know, film and TV or or is it just kind of come in drips and drabs like you know, how how often are you you doing TV st- uh, TV auditions, I guess, or film auditions? Well,
1: here's the thing, you know, the, the the landscape for film and television, it's it's an odd sort of paradox in a way because there's so much more content because there's sure. so many more platforms. Then there used to be, there was a time when I was coming up where it was nothing but network television, right? you know, you had ABC, CBS and ABC and all of those, you know, Thursday nights, NBC, you know, uh, must watch, right? you know, right. All, all of that, you know? And so you, there was a limited amount of, of, of sort of television work that, you know, so it was a, it was a much smaller kind of thing. But, but, but what happens is, is that, you know, that cast 22, cause I spent most of my career working in the theater, mm-hmm. you know, and a short stint in LA between the Denver Center Theater Company and then going to Oregon Chaser Festival, which was about, I would say about nine months that I was in LA and mm-hmm. without an agent. And I had done a small, low budget, uh, horror film in Denver and I had some tape you know some mm-hmm, some sure, video yeah. of me really, yeah. and i went to one of those places and created a, a tape you know a, my tape to, that i could show around and all you know I, I did st- and i did a lot of house sitting while i was there and <laughs> but i i and i had one had one disaster sort of meeting at one agency where i was advised to tell them that what i wanted was to make as much money as possible you know, and for them and for myself, you know, and yep. it, that did not go over particularly well.
0: And <laughs> it didn't go over you know, well like I, with, with you or like when you tried to well, say that. I felt to them. like it was false. You know, one of the yeah,
1: things, of course. That, the adage, the adage, of course, is be yourself. Right. You know, don't try and figure out what it is that the business and whoever it is that's representing the business wants. You know, it's like, Oh, I think I should wear these glasses. Sure. Or maybe I should grow a mustache. Or, you know, there are people in L.A., particularly in the, that media, television, and film, who have chased their tails for decades sometimes trying to find that thing that is going to be commercial and appealing to the business. And mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's inauthentic. And the only thing that really works in the business is authenticity, I, ironically. It's in, right. in something that is so colossally artificial, yeah. you know, but there's, there's something about, you know, those people that have what I guess you could call an it factor, mm-hmm. which is there's just something about them. And, and, and in film and television, it doesn't really have anything to do with acting. That's mm-hmm. not to say that there aren't really good actors in film and right, television, Of course, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. You can be drop dead gorgeous, and as long as you can walk and chew gum, you know, and you can remember lines and hit a mark, you know, you're probably going to work, right? And you know, and then again, there's you know, there are great character actors. There's certain you know cadences and qualities right. that certain actors have, you know. But you know, Catherine Coulson, for example, who was an actress that was the Logged lady, and that David Lynch, what was what was that? Oh, Twin Peaks. Lynch, Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. Yeah. Well, she was an actress in at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival a- ended up going there. And, uh, you know, she had been a kind of touchstone in her life. Anyway, she had an affair with, with Frank Zappa. And, I'm you know, I'm not huh? telling the story. So these are things that yeah, she yeah, would yeah. talk about, yeah. you know, but, but Catherine was one of those people that you wouldn't say was a dynamic or particularly, you know, unique or, or, or what am I trying to say? Facile actress. Mm-hmm. But you, When she was on stage, you couldn't take your eyes off her. Hmm. You just could not not watch Catherine. She was just inherently authentically interesting. Hmm. And it's one of the reasons why she was the log lady and why there's, you know, there was these things about Catherine. And, you know, Ursula and I talk about this a lot, you know, about teaching acting and is acting Teachable and ultimately does it matter because then there there are some people that just have it and some that don't. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes and particularly with the camera. You know, I went to a party once in New York with Celeste home, Yeah, I happened to go to a party that Shakespeare Company was trying to raise money. And I went to this party, and you know, mm-hmm. I remember Valerie Perine showed up, and it was one of those things where she came in and did this grand entrance and took this meek coat off and looked around and realized there's nobody here that's going to help me at all. <laughs> no, it, there aren't enough famous people. It's not, you know, and it was, I, I remember seeing her face just kind of like fall, you know, and like how soon can I get out of here? And within about 20 minutes they were gone. But Celeste Holm was there and she was, she was great. And she was in the, she was in the kitchen and, mm-hmm. you know, people were talking to her and, you know, she's, she was in all about Eve when, Arguably one of the greatest films ever made, sure. certainly one of the greatest screenplays ever made, and famous for Marilyn Monroe's first film appearance. And Marilyn Monroe appears where they're all at this party. The you know, fasten your seatbelts; it's going to be a bumpy night. Is you know, right, so so yeah. Les Holmes, Gary Merrill, I think it was, and Betty Davis—they're all sitting on this staircase. And they're having this conversation. And as the scene goes, Addison DeWitt, who is the um, critic, the famous critic
2: who's, right, you know,
1: yeah. comes in with this blonde bombshell on his arm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's Marilyn Monroe. And Marilyn Monroe had like, like one or two lines. I can't remember. But as the story goes that Celeste was telling, they're sitting on the staircase and it's been a long day and this. They, they're trying to shoot this scene, this where he comes in with her, and they come in and she blows the line over and over and over again. And not only does she blow the line, you know, her exchange, but she, you know, she she can't seem to get focused. And they're all Betty Davis, you know, Celeste, they're all just mm-hmm. rolling their eyes, going like, right, "What right. are we doing? This is going. We're, we're wasting our time here, you know." And and it's going to be cut it's 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 going to be cut or they're going to have we're going to have to do it again with somebody who can actually do this right you know so she they finally get through and she, you know she doesn't and so celeste decides to go to the rushes and she goes in to see you know how just how bad this actress was going to be just how bad it was and her jaw hit the floor when she saw it because she went oh my god the camera loves this woman. She's, it, it, it's inexplicable. You know, stories about Gary Cooper and all of the gaffers, all the crew up on the grid laughing at him during high noon and, and films, you know, because he's so stiff. And yet on camera, it's magic. Right. And that's an
0: intangible. And so, I mean, you know, looking at the work that you have done on film and, and TV, you know, TV movies and all that, did you make a conscious was it a conscious decision on your part to not pursue more of that? Or was that just the way that the cards, you know, the cards you were dealt and, and just the kind of the, 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 the your your career? Yeah. You know,
1: it, it's pretty much the way that my career went. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I wanted like any other actor that has ever, you know, worked in the American stage, wanted the greatest and largest audience that they could get. And, you know, I, when I came up, you know, my, I was hugely influenced when I was in high school by Peter O'Toole in Beckett. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. And,
1: you know, those, 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 a lot of those early O'Toole, Lawrence of Arabia.
0: Sure, yeah. Yeah. And. I was just, uh, I was just rewatching it the other day. And I mean, like, God, talk about somebody magnetic on screen. Just, and, and I think in late, later in life, he said. And I don't know you know whether it started with Arabia or he knew what he was doing even then, but it was like he was always calculated in terms of his physicality on camera, like he always was very aware of what he wanted to do on camera because he knew it was such a visual medium that that he understood that and he and he was somebody obviously that came from the stage, but you know he he understood that relationship with the camera,
1: yeah, and he was so dynamic. Just, just yeah. inherently dynamic in every yeah. way. He was larger than life. And so he didn't have to work at making that dynamism and that charisma explode. You know, yeah. one of the things about Peter O'Toole was that he was so vulnerable but
2: mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. he could make himself incredibly vulnerable on camera, you know. And, you know, it was just and, and it was
0: it was larger than life, you know. Well, you mentioned you mentioned you know he was an inspiration as a kid. So I wanna I want to go back to the beginning. You, did you grow up in Denver? Is that where you started? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I was born in Denver, and my mother.
1: In my first memories, when she was, uh, she was a, a, a theater student at Denver University, oh, did okay. two years there before they. My dad and her got married, and then she got involved in the Junior League, and she would play Raggedy Ann and. Nupple still skin And, you know, I was you know, very, very proud of the fact that my mother was the lead in these shows that all my friends were going to see. Is this and, when you uh, were like five or something like that? Five or six? Or yeah. 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 yeah about that age. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was trying to remember what the first time I performed was, but there was always a, 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 an element of theatricality. Mm-hmm. And I think this is probably true. It, you know, it's true of a lot of kids anyway. I have very early memory of me being in a fireman outfit—a yellow plastic coat with red boots and a red fire hat and a hose—spraying the tree in front of our house, and mm-hmm. the the water coming down on my head, and having a visceral feeling of being a fireman. Wow. You know, I remember playing war games. You know, like we played World War II, which was not that far away. Right. You know, it only maybe. 20 years or so and you know i would direct these attacks you know i direct these scenes you know (laughs) you know based on films that we had seen you know where i would tell them you know so we're gonna run and these guys are here and you fall first and you fall first and i don't care if you have to fall in dog doo-doo you have to go you have to fall down you know and so i directed these things you know and they were they were really you know visceral so i was acting as kids do, you know, dressing up right. as superheroes and things. But I don't think I ever l- lost that that feeling. You know, I mean, I I, I would was, say was
0: there, I, yeah. Was there? I mean, was there anything else that you know? You said you had that kind of visceral sensation of being a firefighter. Did you Did you imagine yourself ever doing it? Like, were there ever any uh, other ideas of things that you wanted to do? Yeah, I wanted to be a doctor.
1: Really, when I when I was in fourth grade, you know, I was very very interested in anatomy. I would, you know, I had an invisible man, you know, and I was I I would read, you know, about you know different systems, you know, mm-hmm. muscular system, vascular system. You know, I was I was really really interested in being a doctor. I I, I love the idea of the microcosm of the body and you know sure stuff like that. But again, I have to say there was also an aspect of playing doctor of, of right. wanting to be a right. doctor you know you could <laughs> i was doing research about you know not being a real doctor but i play one on tv <laughs>
0: right you know, I, 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 I spoke with Robert Pine a couple of years ago for the podcast and he said that exact thing. Like he, I think he thought he wanted to be a doctor and, and he admitted like he wasn't a very good student. And when he started, you know, I think taking the classes, he was like, wait a second. No, this, this isn't right. This like, I'm not supposed to be the actual doctor. I can, I can just go play a doctor. Like that's, that, that's probably more of my alley. And, and so what was your dad uh, do? What did he do for work? My
1: father worked in real estate. He initially, you know, he was, he was very deaf craftsman. So, you know, he started out building houses with my, my mom's sister's husband with his brother-in-law. Okay. And they built a number of houses along Sixth Avenue in Denver and, and in that area. And then one day his Bernie, my, my uncle showed up and said, well, Jim, it's all yours. Business is yours. He just gave it to him because he, you know, it, it, and gave him a, a bunch of debt, you know, and all. Oh, it geez. was, it was, it was kind of a mess. And because they were co-owners of this construction company, and then Bernie just bailed on him. And it was horrible. So, but anyway, my father went into selling houses, and uh, the irony is, is that his grandfather. Owned the Newcomb Real Estate Company in Denver, which was the most successful real estate company in the aughts and t- into the '20s mm-hmm. and into yeah. the '30s. And my, for for some reason, my grandfather, my great grandfather, thought that there was no future in Denver real estate market. Mm. Uh, and part of that was the depression, but I I think he was depressed, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's some scuttlebutt about that he took his own life, although it's not official, but. It's kind of a mystery, but he sold the Newcomb real estate company to, uh, a a guy named Van Skok. And the irony is, is that when my father left the, the construction company, he went to work for Van Skok as a, as oh, a, he sold okay. houses and, uh, and then he worked from there and he, you know, he, he, he got a broker's license and he ended up working for Equitable and he, he managed buildings downtown and was extremely good at that. Hmm. But he also got involved because my mother was involved in theater. He got involved in in the theater like the whole family did
0: as her career sort of rose. So he was Uh, he was he acting or or what was his role in that?
1: Yeah, he, you know, he was resistant to it at first because of the the ethos of the 50s and 60s of the man providing and the woman being a housekeeper thing. And her, she had now a second career. It was supplementing the income quite a bit for the house. But, you know, she, she, and, and, and her star rose. I mean, she was she a was gifted director. Really, yeah. re, you know. Anyway, he was a great clown. My father was a great clown. Physical really? clown.
0: Very funny. Very Is that, is that where, I, and I know you, well, I, maybe we'll touch on this. I know you played Festy a number of times. And, and I'll, I like, do you, do you feel, because everybody is kind of like a type at heart. Do you feel like, is your type a clown at heart? Or where, we're like, or are you are you the are you the lover? Are you the the fighter? Are, yeah.
1: yeah, No, I, I I don't really know. I mean, I'm kind of known for my edge. Okay, you know, I can be comic. You know, I mean, I was really f- a f- good example is Thersides in Joyless and Cressida. Yep, okay. because that was one of my big triumphs in in Ashland. Because Thersides, you know, he, he he's a he's a he's a caustic cynic. Amongst Mm -hmm. the uh, Greeks during the Trojan War, and he's been, you know, he's he's this little homunculus, you know, who's very unattractive, and and you know, but is quite witty, and and just makes mincemeat of guys like Ajax who are not very bright, right? You know, not and 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 he drives these, you know, and, and actually in the Iliad, he says one too many vile things. To a Ajax, and Ajax ends up punching him in the face, and they describe his teeth going out the back of his head <laughs> He finally hits him so hard, but in Troilus he beats him up, and yep. you know I just keep making fun of Ajax while he's throwing me around the stage oh, and there's okay, one yeah. famous there's there's a there's a picture of me in the Arden I think there was in one edition where Jamie Peck, who played Ajax who is ch- giant of a man. Yeah. He's holding me by my ankle upside down. So, you know, in terms, I mean, you, you can argue that Thersites is one of Shakespeare's fools, the darkest of all of his fools.
0: Yeah.
1: And so, you know. I've
0: been known as, you know, having an edge, you know, I played sure. Puck four times, you know. It, well, yeah, there's a there's a mystery and a mischievous, you know, quality, not necessarily of Jamie, but that, that that that's part of, you know, part of your energy. I mean, we all obviously have, have a lot of facets. I want I I found something that I couldn't believe I found I'm going to I'm going to drop this in the in the oh. in the chat so that you can see it. Let me see. I I want and I'm curious to hear what you recollect of this. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, wow. That's,
1: that's, where did you get that?
0: Okay. So I, I got to tell you, this was a total rabbit hole. So in, yeah. And I want to hear the the story. I, I guess this was a production of Babes in Arms and it said like from July 1965. So you were, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 or something like that. No, when I, when I was going through your, your film work in one of the casts, I noticed the name Claudia Newcomb, right? Or is that, yeah. And, and I was My like, sister, yeah. right. And so, yeah, at the time I'm just like, that seems like too much of a coincidence. Who is Claudia? And so I just start Googling her and somehow, you know, like obviously your sister, she's in the back row, like her name was tagged in this and that came up as a search result. And, and then, and your name is, is there Jamie Newcomb, but, but yeah, anyone that knows what you look like, as soon as they identify you down in the lower left corner, it's like, oh yeah, that's Jamie. That is totally Jamie right there. And, and there were actually, there were, there were, you know, some pictures of your mom. There looked like a couple pictures of your mom and your dad together, maybe like at the opening of a show or something like that. Just, you know, stuff oh. from the Denver post from the sixties. And, but, but yeah, I was like, when I saw that, I'm like, holy cow, I wonder if Jamie even knows that this is out there.
1: I'd love to see that. I'd
0: especially love to see those pictures of my mom and dad. Oh sure, yeah. yeah. No, I'll send you. I'll send you a link. But so, I mean, was this? I mean, I, you know, I know you said like the whole family was involved. Was this one of the first things you had done, or was this like you had already been doing it for a long time? Yeah, I don't even.
1: I didn't even remember that we were in Babes in Arms. That we did. That that looks like it's the basement of St Thomas Church where yeah. my oh, mom yeah, so. ran. You know, she was the the, the director for Saints and Sinners one of the directors, which was a community theater. And they had a great big, great hall well, they had a great hall with a stage. And they did some amazing things in there. And one of the first shows I ever did was uh, Our Town, where I played Joel Kroll, oh. you know, that my mom directed. And my dad did a bunch of stuff there. He played Mr. DePina in... Um, Oh, you can't take it with you, right? You can't take it with you. And he also was the Dauphin in The Lark that my sister was Joan in. Oh, wow. Okay. And, you know, so that's that's kind of where it started. And then my mom got hired. Henry Lowenstein came to see a show that she had directed, who was the producer at the Bonfies Theater, which at that time was the biggest theater in Denver that Helen Bonfies had funded. You know, and she was a big angel on Broadway. She owned the Denver Post. She came from mm. a family in Kansas City called Bonfoyosi that was a mafia family, and she changed her names, <laughs> anglophiled it to, to Bonfies and you know they had a, a road house at Elitch Gardens in Denver where all the road plays came through and oh okay you know but so my, my Henry Lowenstein was the producer there, and he hired her to do children's th- shows, and then pre- she proceeded from there to end up doing made stage shows
0: and and that really launched her kind of professional career and and so you know i mean obviously it sounds like you know you and you, and you have a couple of sisters right they were all involved everybody was involved doing, doing my older sister glenna is four years older than i am yeah and are, are they still like involved in in the arts or do they go and do something else entirely my younger sister is working for the denver center for the performing arts and the education oh, okay uh,
1: department, she's, uh, teach, she does uh, shows and uh, teaches high school kids through the department there. She also has been a stage manager for them. She also runs the Bobby G awards, which she adjudicates all of these musicals throughout the region wow. in Colorado. And then they come for a competition in Denver at the Besher concert hall and winners are chosen. Then they go to New York and they win scholarships and. So, yeah, so she's still involved. My oldest sister worked for Kaiser Permanente in. in outreach for the community and developed shows for high school kids about such a education and hygiene. And, mm. and then she did uh, mm. senior issues shows, and then she's worked her way into the political aspect of, you know, liaison from Kaiser Permanente to the um, you know, representatives in Colorado and Denver, okay. you know, of, yeah. of the community, so... And, but she also acted, you know, in, both of them acted
0: in Denver. And did you, so when did you, you know, really kind of latch on to this idea? Were you still, you know, in middle school or high school that you latched on to the idea of, of being an actor, pursuing it? Cause I mean, cause obviously it, it sounds like it was, you know, quite a, a huge part of your world growing up. But when did you kind of see it as like, yes, that's, that's the thing that I want to pursue?
1: You know, I, I can't really say. It, it uh, you know, like you asked me the question earlier on. You, you know, did I ever focus on wanting to work in television and film, or did the, you know, my career just sort of? And and I, I'd have to say that I never consciously made a choice out of high school because my parents split up when I was a senior in high school, and that was more of a trauma than I thought it was at the time. Hmm. But I was a little bit adrift, and I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I, I went to Adams State College in Alamosa, Colorado, for a semester, you know, and t- did a lot of drugs. <laughs> I did, did. I mean, my nineteenth birthday, I spent in the great sand dunes on psilocybin. You know, but it was amazing night, just amazing night. But I was, I, and then I ended up being a maid at, at a Holiday Inn in Vale, you know. But they happened to shoot a a, a movie of the week there. And Eric okay. Braden was in it and Britt Eklund was in it. And this is a, this is an apocryphal story about me that, you know, she had this black sable coat that she was like just drop dead, knockout, you know. Yep. And one day I was cleaning her condo and the sable coat was laying on her bed. Well, I had to put it on. <laughs> so I put it on and there were these full length mirrors in the closet and I'm swishing around, you know, with this, this coat, you know, playing a rock star and one of the other maids came in and said take that off what are you doing i said I, you know sorry took put back on the bed you know well about two days later the sable coat went missing Uh oh and i was one of the suspects Yikes. because this other maid had seen me wearing yeah. you know which wasn't you know <laughs> just circumstantial so anyway they brought me in and they were going to give me a lie detector test but she came to my rescue she said it couldn't have been him because I know when it was stolen, and yeah, mm. it, 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 it he was not working at that time, and you know, she, she, she kind yeah, of yeah it worked out yeah said it had to be somebody who came into that into the room, you know, because I had access, I had keys, I had a master key, you know, so right, uh, right, right. Anyway, as it turns out, she had it stolen for as I heard through the grapevine, oh. she had it
0: stolen for insurance
1: purposes. Yeah, she was fr- okay, yeah,
0: cash pull. Well, so. So was it in, 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 I mean, I, I understand the reasons for you kind of being adrift and and I want to get touch back on that, but like in, in high school, were you, you know, just doing all the plays and, and, and thinking that this was something you wanted to be because I mean, one of the other interesting things, of course, is, you know, what is going on in the country. And I even read that, like, didn't you change high schools because of uh, some riots had broken out at one of the schools or something like that because of the busing issues?
1: Yeah. You know. I, 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 in all honesty, when we first moved from Birch Street, which was in Park Hill, which was in the Northeast part of, of Denver near City Park, my older sister was in middle school going to Smiley Junior High School. And there were a number of black families that were starting to move into that area. And there were a mm-hmm. number of black students that were it that were going to school at Smiley. Sure, and I'd I'd be lying if my parents moving to the sort of northeast part of Denver wasn't white flight. At the time, they were afraid. That's that's just the truth. Sure. I didn't know it at the time. I know it now. You know it, right. but but that's why we moved where we did. Now we were right on the line of East High School and George Washington High School. We lived in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. As a matter of fact, I can remember being jealous of the fact that and and also feeling sorry for the majority of the kids that i went to school with having to go to hebrew school after school you know so anyway so we moved there and Mm -hmm. while i was at george washington university was when forced busing was imposed Mm. got it and there were a massive number of riots you know uh instability you know because of the because it was forced Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and i you know so we decided to go to East High School, which was more more of an integrated school, which was in South, very near where we moved away from initially. And we stayed in the same house. We just decided to, they, they, they made it possible for us because we were right on the border to go to East High School halfway
0: through my senior year. So, I mean, were you like, I mean, outside of the decision of which high school you were going to go to and all that kind of stuff, were you... Were you aware or was there a lot of discussion in the House of what was going on, you know, in the country? Because this is like, what, 67, 68, 69, somewhere in there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can remember my mother saying after I think it was a interview on one of the news channels which had to do with the the Atlanta boycott that my mom said, I just, what are they so upset about? What are they so angry about? I mean, there was a massive disconnect. But yeah. you have to understand that also my grandfather was a member of the KKK. He was in the, well, he was a a, a Mason. Yeah. And at the time in the 20s, I don't know if you know, but the governor was a member of the KKK. There's pictures oh, wow. of the KKK marching down Lincoln Boulevard in front of the Capitol. Hmm. And just about every major leader in the city was, was a member. Jeez, wow. And my grandfather was as well. You know, and, you know, he was, he was a blatant, you know, racially biased individual yeah. and, you know, proud to be a part of what we now know is we've always known, but has now been, you know, of, of institutional racism. Right. And my, my mother grew up in that kind of a household. Yeah. And my father grew up in a, in a, in a household, you know, not quite as blatant, but it, but definitely racially biased. And uh, so that's what, you know, the world that we grew up in. I, I like to think of it as benevolent racism, you know, which a, a smile on the outside, you know, and, and yet I don't want, you know, I mean, right. my, my, my older sister is married to a Latinx man and mm-hmm. my mother still had trouble with, you know, mixed
0: marriages. Do, do, do you think, so, like, I mean, were you actively, I mean, you know, like like the younger generation does, were you actively rejecting, or the younger generation often does, were you actively rejecting those ideas of your parents at the time? Or was it something that later in life you kind of reflected on and, and wanted to be more open and em- embracing of other cultures?
1: Well, in all honesty, like most people growing up in that period of time, I think I was oblivious to my privilege. Yeah. Really, well, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I, I, I certainly paid lip service, and I certainly yeah. vocally supported mm-hmm. the civil rights movement, right? But I didn't.
0: I wasn't active. Yeah. You know, I didn't actually do anything. You know, no, it's, So it's it, it's interesting because you reminded me that one of my mother's friends at the height of the the Black Lives Matter and, and the protests in early 2020, one of my mother's friends said you know, what do what they, you know, they, they just keep going on and on about this. And and my mother was like, well, if they don't, nothing's ever going to change, you know? And, and it's just like, and, and, you know, the, well, obviously my mom and her friend were both white, but it's like that kind of idea of like, you know, ar- aren't you done, aren't you done protesting? Like, you know, aren't, you know, like, why do you keep, you know, going on about this? And it's like, well, yeah, because it's, it's not different yet. And, and, you know, so like the story of your mom commenting on it, and it, and it's not the i think it's that's not the overt racism we we think about when we think about racism but it's like we yeah like we need we need to be open to hearing the other side of the 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 conversation and and you know understanding that right things are probably still not okay you know that you know just because we don't want to hear it doesn't mean that it's fixed
1: no i mean my learning curve is still happening i i, oh, yeah, I you know yeah. i i have m- much to learn about i lose experience and my own you know my own blinders about you know racial discrepancy in this country you know it's and and it you know i mean it's you know my education is ongoing and yeah. the more aware i am the more oblivious i am the more you know uh you know the more um i mean i think of you know i mean like you look back at your childhood you know, and how innocent it is, and you know that right. there's this underbelly you know of things that um but i you know I am an advocate and always have been an advocate for social justice in every yeah. form uh in every way, you know, I consider what I ended up doing for a living to be an advocate for social justice because in mm-hmm. every play, there is always a conflict and a moral object lesson at the end of it you know about and they're all about good and evil they're all about what's wrong and what's right and you know and you hope the audience comes out of whatever that circumstance is you know with a broader sense of the human condition as a whole and i take great pride in the fact that as a profane clergyman <laughs> in the theater which i i think of the theater as a profane church you know yeah. a place of worship And where we honor the human condition, but it's,
0: it's, it's, you know, with all of its warts. So during that period, you were adrift. How did you? I mean, and I'm sure it can, you know, seem a lot simpler looking back, but how did you get yourself back on track or, or did you even know what track you were looking for? You You know, know, I mean, I, I knew, I knew I was
1: talented. I, I knew I could connect with text. I, I knew, you know, I, I was, I was in the speech club and competed in speech. And I used to do a piece from Johnny Got His Gun, the horrific piece about him waking up and finding out he doesn't have a face. It's very effective. And, you know, and I, 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 it's one of those things I had affirmation from other people as I went along, as I sort of dabbled in it, you know, and, and then, and then I auditioned for, Colorado Women's College in 1976, I think it was, 75, maybe. And that was, you know, they had a theater department, they had a really good theater department. At that time, Colorado Women's College was part of the female Ivy League. And they had, they needed guys you know, in in and, the department. For a
0: young guy adrift, uh, a women's college sounds like a great great spot to. to head and to... my older sister had gone to school there,
1: yeah. So so I I got in; they accepted okay. me, and I was there for two years. And I remember one night, one yeah, one night in a note session, and this was my epiphany. This was my my answer to the call. This is when I heard the call. I remember it distinctly because we were sitting there on the stage and we were getting notes and I looked up in the grid and I was looking up at the grid and I realized this is what I was going to do for the rest of my life. No matter where it took mm-hmm. me, no matter what I did, whether I became famous, whether I or not, this was what I was going to do. This was what I was going to pursue. Mm-hmm. And I can't really say it was because, you know, the camaraderie or, you know, it was a great way to meet girls or, you know, whatever those, those sort of right, things, right. you know, I, I really, you know, it wasn't, it was actually very quiet and solemn mm-hmm. generally that this mm-hmm. was, I, it was more of like an awareness of, of the inevitability of it. And from that point on, you know, uh, Mark Cuddy was in that program. Mark Cuddy ended up going back to UMass to get his degree. He started a small storefront theater in Northampton, Massachusetts. Carter was president. You could get, he subsidized the arts with the CETA program, Comprehensive Employment and Training Act. Mark got a grant. He asked me to come out there and in 1977 and do children's theater and then be part of the regular company in their subscription series. And then we had a late night cabaret on Fridays and it was just an immersion of performance. You know, rehearsing and performing something all the time. And then I met Tina Packer while she came to Smith College to direct a show. And she ended up at that time getting the mount, you know, from the Ford Foundation and Mitch Berenson, you know, whom Terry Malloy is based on and on the waterfront. And oh, okay. then she brought me up there and with a bunch of other people. And I got training from B.H. Berry, where I learned all of my, a lot of my fight stuff and Kristen Link later. And I got, Kind of professional classical training for the, for the first
0: time, and, and and I mean, did it like you, you know? Obviously, because I mean, it's it's you know, Shakespeare Company has become such a such an entity, such a force. At the time, I mean, did it just did did it just kind of happen, or were there, were these things that you? You know, I mean, because I know at the time when people are starting things, you never know what it's going to become. But yeah, I mean, like how how easy were the conversations? Was it just like, hey, Jamie, we'd love you to, you know, come up and do this. And, and you were teaching pretty early on, right? Or or, or were you just a, an acting company member? Not just, but only a company well, member. Well,
1: you know, I was I was, you know, Mark had asked me to come out to sure. Massachusetts. And that I knew that was a fork in the road. Right. Right. And I was really grateful. That was one of my happiest times of my life when I went out there. And, you know, so we were, you know, putting together these children's shows and then we would tour them and, you know, we'd bring schools into the, to the theater, you know, and then we would be rehearsing the, the show and then performing a show that night. And, you know, and it just happened, you know, I'm, I knew I had heard through the grapevine that Tina Packer from the Royal Shakespeare Company. Was coming to Smith College to direct a uh, school for wives, something like that. And so, you know, I heard that she was doing a, a workshop. Mm-hmm. And I got myself in the workshop at Smith and I did Hotspur. Oh, okay. um, yeah. You know, my liege, I did Deny No Prisoners. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember I killed it. I, I, I really killed it. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, for what I thought, you know. And at one point during this workshop or at some point, I remember I pulled Tina aside. We went into this. Can I, I said, can I talk to you? She said, yeah. And I, I we went into this like vest, you know, the stairway vestibule sort of place, mm-hmm. you know, and I said, you know, I know you, I, I've heard you're going to be doing Romeo and Juliet at, at the theater up at the mount. And I, I said, I would love to play Balthazar, you know, not a big role, but Balthazar is sure, yeah. you know, kind of pivotal. He's got, you know, and I knew she was impressed that I asked that, and in uh, terms
0: of, in terms of like your directness or which like strategically which role you were asking for
1: both yeah yeah so she she brought me up, and uh, the very first year I, I well they had to postpone it so she did midsummer Night's dream and I was in a midsummer Night's dream at Smith College later that year that a friend of hers directed and then they' They cast two other people, Tony Samotis and as Puck. I played Puck in that Smith College production. And Tony had just graduated from NYU and Kristen had been teaching at NYU. But I ended up being an associate the stage manager, assistant stage manager on that project. But I was also doing The Tempest in Look Park in Northampton. So I was kind of going back and forth, you know. But then she asked me to be a part of the, the first fall, mm-hmm. you know, be part of the people that would you know, bring the house back because it was the Fox Hollow School for Girls and it needed a lot of work done to it and winterize it. And for that, we would get training, you know. Right. And so through that fall, and Richard Dreyfus came up because he had just done Julius Caesar and he was going to do Iago in Atlanta and he had just won the Academy Award and he wanted to be the, the country's greatest classical actor now was his next goal. So he got training from... I mean, it was heady stuff i mean it, yeah. you know it was kind of like it felt like i was on my way you know in a way i, I was working with you know the, the biggest movie star of the time oh I sure mean, it was, yeah you know and you know we slapped each other in the combat class over and over again it was you know it was it was re- it was impressive you know and
0: and then i you know i, I stayed on until mm-hmm. the winter and then i went to new york Okay, and then and then and, and the idea or the plan in New York was to you know I mean just to start auditioning and, and you know, figure that out. And did you did you have anything lined up in terms of like survival work or what was the or did you had you been able to save some money from Shakespeare and Company?
1: Josie Abity, who was the at that time she was running the the Berkshire Theater Festival mm-hmm. in Stockbridge. She had a connection at the Met. And she got me a job in, at the Met selling tickets. Okay. Yeah. And so, and I was staying with a friend on a couch for a while until I sort of got established there. And I was in New York for a while and i working at the Met, you know, there was, people would call up and complain about the performance to you know, the box office. And we'd say, yep. well, I'm sorry, you didn't like Mr. Domingo, you know, <laughs> in that role. And they would they they'd get irate, you know. And they the the joke was, you know, what's your name? What's your name? Well, my name, madam, is Houdini, and at the touch of a button, you'll disappear. Click. <laughs> 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 anyway, you know, so I did that, and I knocked around there, and then Mark Cuddy asked me to come up to do a show back at City Studio Theater in Northampton, and it was written by a, a Russian playwright named Alyosha kostyenko I think it was called The End of the World, or Something like that. Anyway, he was the Russian Bob Dylan. He was famous for Mm, writing these protest songs and being underground and, you know. But he wrote this play, which was this Russian fairy tale about a scientist, you know, and to solve the problems of the world. And I was this homunculus that was grown in a boiler that was supposed to save the world. And I shaved my head. And it it was a wild, wild piece. And it was actually well-received. But it also included... Us going down to Russian emigre artists and picking up art from New York and bringing mm. it up, and but there were unmarked FBI cars monitoring us. Really? Uh, w- yeah, I mean, we were we were definitely on, and uh, a CBS covered it. It was it was that was kind of a cool thing, and you know, so and then while I was there and we were doing that, an old professor of Marx and mind, Lon Winston, who is the design teacher when we were at Colorado Women's College and also, you know, involved in it worked with Jersey Gutowski and Richard Schechner in the performance group and turned me on to that whole, you know, performance art, you know, found space, you know, organic theater scene, which was just, you know, mind blowing. And we had done a trip to New York and met Richard Schechner, seen all this, you know, underground theater that was, you know, really kind of heady stuff right up my alley. That the place Mm -hmm. I wanted to go actually. And, uh, So Lon had talked the Nevada State Council of the Arts into a $35,000 grant to bring theater to rural Nevada. And Mark and I, the City Studio Theater had imploded and, you know, we loaded up his truck and we drove to Reno, Nevada. And while we were on our way there, we stopped in Denver and they just happened to be having auditions for the new Denver Center Theater Company that Ed Call was the artistic director for. Hmm. So Mark went in and auditioned, and I went in and auditioned, and uh, great, went great, and I you know, drove to Reno, and we were in Reno doing Jules Pfeiffer's Hold Me, and clowning, we'd go in on a on a Friday night, you know, and
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: drum up this, we'd, we'd juggle in these, you know, Western bars, and I mean, they didn't know what the hell was this, <laughs> as clowns, you know, and, and then we would do a children's show on Saturday at the JCS or the Elks Club or, you know, whatever, and... That night we would do Pfeiffer's Hold Me and then we'd hold workshops on Sunday mornings and leave Sunday night. And Elko, Winnemucca, Eureka, Nevada, these, you know, mining towns, yeah. you know, it was wild. Uh, listening yeah, to the I'm Blues sure, uh,
0: Brothers. I'm sure they had no idea what to make of you guys.
1: <laughs> no, they, they really didn't. They, they really, really didn't but it was like free money you know and we yeah, were yeah, you know, yeah. but while, while mark and i were there doing that we got the call from the from the denver center and i got cast in the first company wow. and mark was hired as an assistant director
0: now you know listening to it and obviously like you know we can all do this kind of look at our past and, and truncate things and it just sounds like so many things were lining up for you and and hitting did it did it feel that way at the time you know once you you know once you had gotten into college and 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 from there were there things that you were really gunning for that like didn't work out and you couldn't like i mean were you were you trying to do the broadway scene or the off-broadway scene like uh, you know and it's not to like bring up painful memories but it's just like you know i'm just kind of curious to hear like what was your experience at the time because obviously you know In a truncated version, it's all like, man, Jamie's career was firing on all cylinders 24-7.
1: Well, first of all, I never had the confidence to sort of like shoot for the big time. Yeah. You know, I when I was in New York the first time, you know, I didn't even think about trying to find a way to to act in New York. It just was overwhelming to Mm. me, just being in New York. Yeah. It's, it's, and I had yeah. come from Shakespeare and company. And, you know, I, I, I really didn't know how to, how to start yeah. to do something like that. Like, do you just knock on an agent's door? Well, yeah, that's what right, you do. Right.
2: Right.
1: But I, I, it, it, I was too intimidated. I, I really, I just wanted to work, but, but also the timing. I never was there long enough to go, I better do something.
2: Right.
0: Do, do you think it was, I mean, because obviously you had done so much in Denver growing up that you were, I mean, you know, in a very simple way. Do you feel like you were a big fish in a small pond and then suddenly you were a small fish in a massive pond? Yeah. Because, I mean, people would
1: talk about me in Northampton, you know, my puck and other yeah. performances. And I was a critic's darling in Northampton, you know, and that was heady. You know, the the, the thing about it is, is that I, I kept getting affirmation.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, was it, was it the, you know, you mentioned the confidence, was it the fear of rejection in New York? And and I know you say you weren't, you were never there really long enough, but you know, what were you able to, are you able to point at what it was that was holding you back from, from shooting for something bigger with all that affirmation, with all that, you know, external validation?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think it's probably self-confidence more than anything else, you know, real self-confidence to put yourself out there and and i and naivete yeah really you know i mean i for for example i can remember being at shakespeare and company it was when i came back to shakespeare and company and courtney vance was one of the uh interns Mm -hmm. Uh and he came up to me and he said he asked me you know so i'm thinking about auditioning for yale you know and nyu and and these schools i think he specifically said yale and he said, I'm thinking about doing that, or should I just, like you did, just go from job to job, you know, and get the experience of working? Sure. And I think I was all of 26 years old, and I, you know, I said, go to Yale. Try try and get into Yale. Yeah. Because I, I, even I knew that Yale was a launching pad.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: At that time, if you, you know, if you got into the Yale School of Drama, you know, you had cachet. You know, Juilliard or Yale, you had cachet Sure You know, and I said, well, you know, either one is there, you know You know the other one is there for you Right, right But Yale, this, you know, you have a shot at it So, then he got in As a mm-hmm. matter of fact, his, his audition was a famous audition Because he he did Lady Percy Oh From Henry IV Part Two. Wow And then he did a series of messengers Shakespeare messengers, and and did each one of them differently. Yeah, yeah and yeah. and he got there in the rest of his history. You know, I have always thought to myself, why didn't I take my own advice? But there was a there was an aspect to my attitude,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which was oh, I really wanted to work. But it was important to me to work, you know, I, I, and I wanted to find the next job, and the next job sort of always presented itself, the next yeah. thing you know because you know after Reno it was the Denver Center and I was at the Denver Center for seven years yeah you know but a lot of the actors that I know that have become well known it is extremely rare that it just happens you know like Jim Parsons for example sure Jim Parsons when he was at USD and I'm Not telling anything, you know, really out of school here, but he was quirky. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And there was some concern about what his future was going to be as having a career. Mm -hmm. You know, apparently this is true of Nicole Kidman as well, that she went to acting school, professional training school in uh, Australia, and the leadership didn't know what they were going to do with her. They were concerned about whether or not she was, you know, because she was, she was just you know, well, <clears throat> we all know what happened, I mean you know sure. yeah, there was a you know this you know big bang theory that came along, he auditioned for it, he delivered right throughout all of those processes, you know, so it wasn't just that you know he was just right for the part, which he was, but he also was able to to do it, mm-hmm, you know because it's you know so much of this business is luck. But when the opportunity arises, the readiness is all being prepared and being able to deliver, you know, is, is the thing. So, you know, but, but, but in that case where, you know, the perfect role came along for the perfect actor that led to a career that is a very high profile career, that right. doesn't happen very often. Yeah. But the ones that I know that have, you know, arced their way you know have 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 had a keen sense of who they are what it is that they they project what what mm-hmm. what that thing is and uh and have known when to you know how to work it
0: yeah- well did you ever feel like there was a a part that just you know it was that kind of perfect marriage? In terms of where you were in your life and your understanding of yourself and the character, and it, and it, you know, it was it was just the right marriage, and and you know whatever level of acclaim or or external success it had, like that, it just felt like you know that that you know whether it led to fame and fortune is is somewhat irrelevant, but like you know, did, do you feel like that happened, and did it happen more than once? It happened a few. In a few yeah. cases.
1: And uh Orphans at the Denver Center. That was a phenomenal production. Jamie Horton, Jim Lawless, and James Newcomb. <laughs> and I uh, played Treat. And I remember a number of people, people from New York came and saw it and said it's you know, too bad this isn't the the production that was done in New York. Not to take mm-hmm. anything away from that sure original Steppenwolf thing, but but I knew we were, you know, that was something special. I also knew that not so much the production, but Thersites was was a definitive take on that, and mm-hmm. uh, and then Richard III at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. That yeah. that was a marriage of timing of where I was in my craft, where I was in my career, my my understanding about that role, the gift that Libby gave me, and being able to do the Henry Sixes. That led to doing Richard III, so I had the progression and, and a clear sense of what I felt Richard's psychological, emotional progression was that I could
0: I could interpret and play. Yeah, with, the, with those plays, did you know when they cast Henry VI, what was it, the season before? Did you know they were, like, because I, I think I read, like, not many of the people from Henry VI ended up in the Richard III, except for maybe a couple people, so... Did you have any say in that, or did you know how far in advance did you know you were going to be able to play the whole thing out?
1: Well, I I knew in two thousand three at the end of the season in two thousand three, Libby cast me to do the Henry Sixes in two thousand four, and then Richard in two thousand five. I knew I was going to continue it straight through. Got it. You know, for two seasons. Yeah, yeah. We did the Henry Sixes outdoors and the Elizabethan, and then the Richard was done in the Bomer. And they weren't productions that were connected you know stylistically we didn't right we right. did the first outdoors was more traditional of mm-hmm. the period and there was more
0: modern version done in the bomber that we did but in both cases i had crutches so were you then doing denver center and shakespeare company kind of concurrently were you going back and forth or what was the no time the like? first
1: you know, I, I I came to the Denver Center when it first started in, in 1979, and that was a, that was a big deal, man. I mean, they, yeah. at that time, Don Sewell, was the only American to ever sit on the board of the Royal Shakespeare Company and owned the sole rights to the sound of music on Sleuth and a number of other, he was Helen Bonfie's entertainment lawyer. Yeah, and was, he also represented like Tallulah Bankhead and a, a oh, bunch wow. of people. You know, um, he was a remarkable. He knew where a lot of skeletons were buried, <laughs> but you know, he they had more money than God. It seemed like at at the beginning of that theater, <laughs> and you know, we did we opened the theater on uh I, I we did Caucasian Chalk Circle, which Ed had directed at the Guthrie, which put regional theater on the map. Hmm. It was the first production that drew national attention. Tandy Cronin was in it. Hume Cronin was in it, and it was a, a, a Jessica Tandy was in it and Hume Cronin, and it it was a massive hit. And so Ed wanted to open the theater with that production, and he had Jeff, he had Tandy Cronin, Jessica's and Hume Cronin's daughter, and uh, Tyne Daly was Show. We opened three plays at the Denver Center, and the openings were. New Year's Eve night. Okay. New Year's Day. And, and then the, the 2nd of January. And so, but we did have a preview on Christmas night. And okay. a lot of the homeless came in and, and because it was free, got warm. They, they offered yeah. it for free and they got yeah. warm and, and slept in the, in the seats, you know. So, and, and the opening of, um, Learned Ladies, which was on New Year's Day, was also, um, the uh, celebration of Henry Fonda, his being awarded the ANTA Award, the American National Theater Award. Oh, okay. And so in the audience on opening night was Henry Fonda and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Wow. And Lynn Fontaine and Lucille Ball and um, Marvin Davis. <laughs> wow. Uh it was it was quite a quite an event. And um And, and were I'd you played... in sorry, yeah, you were in all the shows or or did a couple Yeah, or... well, I was in two of them. I was in Caucasian Chalk Circle and also in Learned Ladies and played Lapin, who is the servant, the oh. silent servant. I think I had two or three lines, but I had a bit where I was standing in the back while the scene was going on, but people kept putting books in my you know, I, yeah. I, I, I carried in books and I, I needed to be still because, you know, told me to, st- I, I, as I remember, anyway, they kept putting books in my hands and I did this bit where I slowly, my legs slowly <laughs> from the weight of the book started to spread. Yep. So I, I, I just sank slowly and, but I, I did it so imperceptibly because I didn't want to upstage anybody right but then there's a reference that somebody did at the end of the scene and i my legs are splayed and suddenly the audience sees what's happened (laughs) and so it had to be really surreptitious yeah you know and timed so that when they did the reference the audience is in i got a big laugh and lucille ball told me afterwards you were funny you were funny
2: that's good and that was
1: that was high praise
0: yeah it, I mean, you know, obviously that's, that's a different kind of uh, physicality, but I, I, you know, I know you've done a lot of fight choreography in your career. Where did that start at Denver center? Like just you getting more interested in mean, Cause I'm sure it was always part of things you were doing, but in terms of your, your pursuit of that work or, or learning of how to, how to choreograph
1: yeah. I mean, you know, movement. I was a gymnast when I was in high school and an athlete, you know, played a lot of tennis, played a lot of tennis tournaments, you know, and so I was coordinated and, you know, and, and when I was at Shakespeare Company, actually, B. Mm-hmm. H. Barry came up to do some workshops with the company and with us and he did the fights for. Those first shows, and uh, you know, he kind of took me under his wing because mm-hmm. he saw that I, you know, had an had an alacrity for it, a- and that I was was very very good at it. You know, good at with swords, and we we did this thing up there. Oh, it was for the community and a fundraiser for Shakespeare and Company. Anyway, it was there were a bunch of fights all over the grounds, and people would wander the grounds and they'd see all these e- elaborate, you know, sword fights and people, you know, hand to hand things and it, it, it was it was really fun, but anyway, so he took me under his wing, and I ended up assisting him uh, at workshops at Yale and Columbia and NYU, and you know I became kind of one of his, you know protege, sure, kind of yeah. kind of things, and so I, I picked up a, a lot from him. And Shakespeare and Company would oftentimes use me as a go-to secondary fight director for their children's show for their for their high school show the touring show and that kind of stuff and then it just grew from there you know i went back back to the denver center and uh, i was choreographing you know directing fights there and jay stephen white who is uh, a a very well-known fight director in new york gave me uh, some uh, more detailed point work with rapiers Mm -hmm okay and court swords and uh, so i i got you know a, a lot from him and then i proceeded you know i i directed fights for idaho shakespeare festival and and for the denver center and then when i went to oregon shakespeare festival i became a sort of in-house resident fight director and did the fights for for all the shows that were there so it just became a, a you know a thing and
0: then i've I,
1: you know, directed a number of fights here in San Diego at the right. Broadway Playhouse and the Globe, and,
0: and and so you know, a couple of questions. Did you find? Did you feel like at the time was it just a very small network? Is that how you kind of got connected with all these different regional jobs, or or were you pursuing well, them? Were you hearing things? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting uh,
1: evolution of fight directing. Uh, in general, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. in the 19th century, all of the fights were codified, and you just did the hamlet Hamilton- oh, okay. fight, and it was it was oh. all marked out usually in the script, and it was the fight that everybody did. You you <laughs> just did that fight, you know. And then, you know, in film, there became the the need for you know f- for that, but in on stage, you know, people just kind of made it up, you know, and they sure. would bring in a fencing master or something, but there were the person who kind of put it really on the map in the modern era was William Hobbes, who did the fights for Romeo and Juliet. Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet oh, okay. and Three Musketeers and Rob Roy and a mm-hmm. number of others. But, but there, it was a kind of natural, naturalistic fighting, you know, that ha- hadn't really been done before. And it kind of set a tone. You know, now what happened in the '70s is, you know, actually David Boucher, who is a very well-known fight director on the West Coast, and B.H. Barry, who was a very well-known fight director fight on the East Coast, they had known each other in England. David's American, but he was studying in England, and they it became this sort of like uh, Crips and the Bloods kind of thing. Okay. Where BH took the East Coast and David went to the West Coast and was based in Seattle. But there was a number of like Eric Fredrickson and fight directors that were on the West Coast. And mm-hmm. the thing that happened on the West Coast is that they, they got together and they created the American Society of Fight Directors. Oh. You know, okay. ACFD, um, ASFD. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get it right yeah. one of these times. But anyway, you know, and, and what they ended up doing is they they started in Las Vegas and they did a number of workshops and they created a, you know, a, a training, you know, to certify, oh,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. uh, actors, you know, and they were the masters. And you, there were various levels of, of accomplishment, you know, and then, you know, so, so there were a number of people that were getting certified, but BH just took people under his wing and sort of, so I was one of those people that ended up, you know, directing fights and teaching, you know, mm-hmm. I've taught at uh, UCSD now for 20 years, and I taught at the National Theater Conservatory before that, that, you know, I never joined the the society because uh, I was already doing it. And, and it was one of those things I sp- might be, you could say might be pride, but I, there wasn't discussion I had with David Boucher, and he wanted me to go through a whole rigmarole of, of qualification. And I felt that I had already was already had done that, and mm-hmm. and my safety record, and you know the quality of the fights that I've done, sort of speak for themselves, you know. Yeah. So you know, I, I, you know, I, I. So there's that sort of you know impasse, I guess, or 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 oddness, you know, about you know now it's been so long. Most people are getting certified. Most people are you know, and and theaters want to hire you know fight directors that are members of sure. the society i still do it and i you know yeah. i just few, you know
0: but uh yeah you pre- will you yeah. predate the society in some some regards you know well been- i did before
1: it even started i was yeah. already direct you know?
0: right and you know i mean in addition to maybe you know the allure of the different weapons and the, and the choreography um was there something about you know what the fight Represented or, or like, you know, how you saw fight choreography beyond just, oh, well, you know, you'll punch here, or kick here, or, you know, use your sword this way here. That
1: it's one of the one of the foundational, uh, principles of, of when I teach, when I'm teaching grad, the graduate students at UCSD is that one of the things that you see oftentimes in productions is generic fight choreography, you know, generic fight that fill, fill in the blank. Sure. And I, you know, one of the things is that, uh, when violence happens on stage, when, when you get to a point where violence, uh, it's usually more often than not, like it is with countries, when they go to war, they can no longer talk to each other. Right. You know, mm-hmm. words aren't going to do it, you know. And there are dynamics of somebody who is provoked into a violent act, you know, that can be impulsive. And sometimes it's, it's, you know, thought through. It's it, it's you know intended. So so you know, depending on the physicality of the actors and depending on the circumstances of the situation in the play, you know, you want to create something that's realistic. I mean, I've seen things where people are hit somebody with a backhand to the face, and then that person gets up and and has a monologue. Well, right. you wouldn't be able to do that, right? You know, sure. I mean, it says he hits him. You know, okay, but if you do that particular hit. It's it's out of context with because that's about as brutal a punch as you can give as a as a full backhand smack to the face, right? You know, and, and, and the same thing with you know, like, and also the care that you know, because you don't know how violence is acted out on any individual in their life, and it's a, it it is presumptuous to assume that thing for somebody to 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 do, yeah. Uh, and so, oftentimes the you know the fight bit of 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 violence is, I think, given short shrift, you know. Mm. But if you have, like, the strangling of Desdemona. Right. You know, you have to come up with a reason why, well, he strangles her and then she doesn't die. And then he puts the pillow on her and suffocates her. Right. To kill her. I've always thought he broke her neck, mm. you know. And that, that's one of the reasons why she can't talk to Amelia, because she's mm. lying there paralyzed. Well, um, uh, but knows that she's, you know, there is a possibility of here, you know, it's just, it's just trying to find what specifically is happening, yeah, in this moment, and how is, how can this violent moment best serve the the overall narrative, right, and, right, and that, be, a, yeah. be effective,
0: you know, right, that it's, it's the continuation of the story just through different yeah. means, not just, yeah. you know, not just let's stop and have a fight and then we'll get back to the story like you know it would be similar to thinking that you know in a musical well the the song is lifted up no the, the song is part of the story it's it's there it's there to serve a need narratively
1: exactly yeah. and you yeah. know you want it to be have some sense of authenticity you know i mean right. and that and that requires time and care and expertise and craft you know yeah. and you have to you know sometimes you know let's say i mean i i choreographed a, Macbeth with where the McDuff Mac, was a very, very good fighter and mm-hmm. the Mackers was not, you know, mm-hmm. and you hope you have at least one cause you can usually make that other person who's weaker look good with yeah, one sure. that is a, a, you know, that moves well and is a good fighter.
0: But, yeah. Well, I I wanted to to jump ahead a little bit cause there's so, there's so much stuff we can cover in your career, which is great. But I, I, I heard a story in the early eighties. So we're, we're you know, kind of on, on track for where we are. That you saw the production of Henry V in New York with Kevin Kline, and the performance of uh, Tony Heald as Fluellen really stuck with you. Yeah. And what's interesting also uh, is that I just spoke with Elizabeth Dennehy, and she was in that production. She was she was like a, a lady in waiting or something. I think uh,
1: we talked about that years ago. Yeah, actually, yeah.
0: Oh, and wow. So, wow. So, and so I know, like, I had heard that, you know, that performance by Tony really stuck with you, and you ended up playing that part at OSF. So I was curious, you know, what made you want to tackle the role based on what you were seeing? And actually, you know, I t- didn't t- play t- Fluwell at
1: OSF. I played it at Chicago Shakespeare. Oh, Chicago Shakespeare. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Right. So, That's you know,
0: right. t- I mean, t- Tony is no slouch himself. So it's not like you're probably seeing something going, oh, I could do this so much better. But, you know, what was it that you know inherent in the character that made you want to to tackle that one
1: well i mean you know his um his loyalty mm. his understanding of history you know of of the rules of war mm-hmm. you know and behavior you know and how things should be how how a soldier should behave you know devotion to henry his reaction to the 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 killing of the boy, of the boys, you know, you know, as, as that's just not done, you yeah. know, you know, his, his ethics.
0: Yeah. So, so was it? Somebody that like kind of just immediately resonated with you or you saw something that was kind of a, a challenge, a hill you wanted to climb. I just loved the role. And I loved the
1: role because, because of Tony. Yeah. Because I, that was the first time I had seen Henry five. And and And, and his relationship with Kevin Klein, yeah, and that and particularly that scene after the battle, you know, where they they bond so profoundly, Mm -hmm. and it's it's beautifully done in the Brana film as well with Ian Holm, who is another Mm -hmm. actor that I've always identified with. Yeah, I remember telling Libby I wanted to be her Ian Holm. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, well, yeah, he he's done a lot of a lot of fantastic roles and and yeah, always yeah. kind of puts his stamp on things too. Um and and I know, you know, you obviously overlapped with Tony Heald at OSF, you know, for a number of seasons and uh, I actually have seen you both play the duke in measure for measure. I you know, I I saw your filmed version, but I I saw Tony's in person. Um do, do you feel like he was one of the actors or or one of the many that, you know, um I guess the question is, are there things that you feel like you learned from Tony from working with him or observing him many years? Or, or were there other actors there that you were just like, I'm really glad I got a chance to watch this person or work with this person because it, it helped me develop this tool or, you know, things like that?
1: Yeah. I mean, Tony's intensity is always inspiring. Oh, really? You know, yeah. Uh, well, yeah I mean, his... uh uh absolute commitment and investment uh, whatever role these play
2: mm-hmm.
1: is something that I, I have always wanted I always admire because I, I I wanted I feel the same way you know about when you take on a role that you you commit to that you, you you know you have a responsibility to to the author and to all those who have gone before to give it your best you know and 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 keep looking i mean you know that's the other thing is that it's that the work is never done it's not really it's always revealing itself that was one of the glorious things about ashland anyway about long runs
2: Mm
1: -hmm. you know is that uh, you you could find things within the framework of what had been you know directed but but you still it was always revealing itself and that's also one of the glories particularly about shakespeare is that it's always there's always something else to find there's right. always something else to be revealed. Rex Raybold is another one uh mm-hmm. who was an actor when I first came to Ashland and uh mm-hmm. just you know and everything he did had such integrity so yeah, you know, but i mean i and i I told Tony when he first showed up in Ashland when he came you know before he was in the company one night I can't remember yeah. what the show was, but he was waiting to to say hi to everybody. He knew. I think he knew some people. And I, I, I said, you know, you, you're, you were a seminal performance in my life. That flew well wow. and has stuck with me all my my life. And uh, I just thought it, yeah, that, you know, it was it was just sensational. And i
0: hope I get the chance to do it. You know, and then later on, I, I did. But um. did did you know over the years? Did did he ever open up about? That performance, you know, from the other side of it of, of working on it, I'm I'm just curious if if you ever heard his no, experience.
1: No, no, it didn't. You know, one of the things about you know, I I was in and out of Ashland. Oh, okay. It, it you know because uh, it was I think shortly after that that I I went to San Diego and I was there for a year or so, year and a half, okay. and then I came back to the company. It was it was at least two years that I was in San Diego before I came back okay. to the company. Um. And, uh, and Tony would be gone, you know, and then he'd come sure, in and I'd go. In. or You know, so, so we were, uh, so I didn't get to hang out with him that much. But one of the things he used to do at his house was do readings on Monday nights. Oh, cool. Of a Shakespeare plays, cold readings of, you know, like, <laughs> Love's Labor's Lost or
0: yep. All's Will It Is. Well. And they were always really fun, you know. I'm sure, yeah. What did you, what did you feel like you discovered playing Fluellen? those many years later, actually getting to inhabit the person? Like, was it, did it, did it meet the, I guess, observational expectations you had or were there even, you know, uh, you, you, know, you, you just talked about, you can continue to discover things. So were there certain things that surprised you about the, the part actually getting to play it?
1: I can't say that there the, 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 the were, you know, there were some cuts that I wished we hadn't cut Mm-hmm. You know, there's a scene with Poins and Leeks you know, where, you know, boys made fun of him and, you know, and Leeks being the vegetable right, of of course. whales, yeah. you know, and so, uh, and it's a very funny scene and, and he really presses oh, his Poins down.
0: Uh, yeah, where he makes him yeah. eat the Leek at the end? Exactly. And you guys cut that? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's, we, oh, we that's cut horrible. That because because <laughs> the director
1: wanted to, you know, tighten things up. And, yeah, of course, yeah. And that was unfortunate. You know, we had a very exuberant Henry. Okay. Um, and one of the things about the dynamic at the end of the battle is, is that if if he's too exuberant, then you can't, you don't get Fluellen's that that sort of bond of like what they've been through, which you, which is so beautifully done with Rana and mm-hmm. Ian Holm, and we we kind of got it, but you know, it's like. I wasn't disappointed playing it because I felt like it was right in my wheelhouse at the time, particularly, you know, and I was so happy to be playing it, you know, and, you know, I ha- have some Welsh background in oh, my really? lineage a little bit. And and I, I don't know, it just was, I I just, I just knew who that guy was. I just knew, no. you know, that there was, there's no, there's no gray, it's black and white, it's this and mm-hmm. that. Yep. You know, it's not, it, 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 it's the world in, in, in the military is precise. Right. You know, and, uh, do you know that, uh, Flewellyn is based on a character, actual historical character named Owen Tudor, they
2: believe. Oh, okay.
1: Okay. And Owen Tudor was a Welshman who ended up marrying Catherine after Henry V died and was the mm-hmm. original line of the sire of the Tudor line
0: oh wow okay yeah. cool now i got my jeopardy answer my my final jeopardy question yeah, answer ready answer right so there's, Go. A,
1: there's a there's a nobility to it i mean they haven't definitively, yeah of course of but, course but you know but owen Tudor you know i mean was at the battle of Agincourt. he was with henry you know he was a dear friend of his he was a commoner who was then elevated mm-hmm. when he married catherine you know mm-hmm. um but
0: anyway, it's it, he's you know Prince of Wales. thing. anyway. Oh, okay. It, that that it, line comes. Yeah, yeah. And and so you know during during the eighties, you know, you're doing Denver Center Theater. You know, you were there for a number of years. W- were you also you know auditioning for other theaters? Were you going back to New York to occasionally do stuff like w- like did you did you have kind of a a plan or goal of of where you wanted to end up by? Yeah, I mean, I know very few people are like, okay, by, by 1990, I want to be here. But, I mean, did you know where you were going, or were you just following the work?
1: I was just following the work for the most part. I mean, I remember, you know, Tina called up, and I got an offer from Shakespeare and Company uh, after 1981 when I did Finch and How to Succeed in Business, which was my big, you know, big role you know i came in playing a prop man in uh in caucasian chalk circle and lapin and then by the spring of 1981 I, you know i'd i'd gotten the
0: part of finch and had ho- you cd business ha, were you like were you very comfortable with musical theater up to that point or was that like a very was that a departure for
1: i mean you? i done, i had done some i had, I, yeah. I had sung you know i mean but this was by far you know i did like little chap and how does stop the world i want to get off or Roar the grease page, you know, and some musicals, you know, when I like in Gypsy and my, you know, stuff when I was growing up. I, I but sure, this was the first lead of a musical mm. that I had ever done. But right while I was doing that, I got offered, went back to Shakespeare Company, and I did a season with Shakespeare Company. I got married that September, my first wife. Uh, then came back to the Denver Center for another season. That's where I met rule
0: and um. so you were just kind of bouncing back and forth so i was kind of bouncing now. back and forth from you know shakespeare company for those couple of years when you made the decision to, well i guess i should ask it did you make the decision to leave denver center theater was that a, a, a conscious decision to do something different or did did you just not get any parts i mean yeah
1: you know. Yeah, I, I was, I played uh, uh, Leslie in The Hostage that Donovan Marley directed. And that was the year that uh, Ed Cole stepped down. And uh, I didn't, unbeknownst to anybody, Donovan Marley eventually was named artistic director, but Ed Cole had brought him in to direct The Hostage. Got it. And uh, direct a, 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 an agent from New York, Ambrosio, Louis Ambrosio. He came uh, out to Denver, and he saw it, and he was impressed. And he said, when you come to New York, let me know. If you mm. come to New York, let me know. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of the following season, I was playing Tranio in Timmy the Shrew, and my wife and I, we moved to New York.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then uh, so he represented me, and so that was sort of like the, the, my choice to go to New York and yep. see what happened, because I had representation, you know, and for the first time. Sure, you know I I really had somebody representing me, and uh, so I went and I got a job fall at Syracuse Stage uh, in Shadow of a Gunman,
0: like Tommy Owens. Was he representing you across the board or just for theater? Yeah, across the board. Yeah,
1: yeah. It it became Ambrosio Mortimer. Meg Mortimer became the other
0: um, half of that, or
1: sort of owner of that of that. And then, unfortunately, it turned out that. Lewis was stealing money from the mm. from the company, and uh, uh, yeah, it was confused. Meg ran it for a little while on her own, but it it kind of went south. Oh, and um, but but you know, went out on auditions there. Uh, um, I remember him telling me, you know, for the first month you should be having like one or two auditions. By the third month, you should be going out, you know, five, four or five times a week, or you know. Mm-hmm. Twelve times a month or something like that. And uh, um and then, you know, and, and that didn't happen. I, I sort of, you know, and these are in the days when you had answering services and you'd call sure, in yeah, yeah. for to get your, your messages and uh you know there wasn't wasn't getting auditions. And I suppose I could have been more proactive about that, but you know, I did but here's the thing this was the lesson that I that I, I taught myself is I had an offer to go to Shakespeare and Company to do Midsummer Night's Training to play Lysander.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I turned them down to stay in New York, and it was going to be for the summer. And it ended up that they, they, you know, the public brought it in, and they, they did, they ran it in Prospect Park, and and, and I said no. You know, I, I asked for more money, and they wouldn't meet it, and so I said no. I, 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 don't, I I'm going to turn it down. And then I didn't work for about nine months. Mm. And I, the lesson that I that has been my thing is I, don't say no. And you know, other people argue this, but don't say no unless you have something else. You know, I mean, like, like if, if you can get sure, them to, sure. to do a better, give you a better offer, and then, you know, then you take it, and and, and you know, you let the other one go. But but it, to say no and not work seems to make no sense. Now, I know people that have said saying no is one of the more powerful things you can do because course, it makes right, you yeah. more attractive. You know, but I was saying no to a company that had already i'd already worked with
0: right. it's not like you know anyways you know. and so so yeah i mean so were you, were you just doing odd jobs uh, to make ends meet during that time i worked to curtain up
1: uh, a restaurant as you do oh, okay in the base of the manhattan plaza
0: on ninth uh, avenue and 43rd street okay and and occasional is probably a, a way that we can describe your your film career is that there are occasional projects once a decade. So you're, you're due for another one. Um, but I mean, was that an intentional decision? Was I mean, did, did you, did you decide you just wanted to focus more on theater or, you know, based, you know, because at that time a lot of it is you need to be in New York or LA or probably even more so LA. And was that just not something you wanted to do?
1: Well, interestingly enough, you know, when I went back from uh new york i i got offered a season donovan marley offered me a season and i went back to the denver center Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and then i worked there for i did a couple of seasons with donovan and then you know I, i i didn't get get a season from them and i was still in denver but i auditioned for this movie uh that was produced by focus features at the time and it was a horror movie it was a low budget horror movie that okay. ultimately we found out was financed by the mob. It was a <laughs> money laundering scheme to do films for VHS release in foreign countries, predominantly. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and it's called Lone Wolf. Actually, you can you can find it on YouTube. There's, I, I think, a couple of overdubbed versions. There's an English version. There's an Italian version. I think there's sure. a Romanian. Anyway, and and uh, you know, I had I had the lead. I had the, you know, uh, oh, okay. I was the uh, frustrated, brooding, hopeful rock and roll star that everybody thinks is the werewolf, but turns out not to be. And yeah, it actually ends up being the computer. So it, it, it's hilarious. It really is. John Callis directed it and we shot it in about three weeks, but it was an interesting process because I hadn't yeah. done a film, you know, like. Sure. And, and, and I got. I actually was doing a, a play, taking steps in Arizona when they did the big opening, you know, party. And uh, but the execs from Focus Features were impressed by what I did,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that was that was cool to to hear. So when I finished that gig in Arizona, I decided to go to L.A. because I didn't have anything and didn't know what else. So I went to L.A. and i I went into Focus Features to meet with these people. Mm-hmm. Now, in the film, I have really long black hair, okay. you know, which had grown over the course of, you know, a, a while. And uh it was great, you know. So I go, but when I did Taking Steps in uh, Arizona, I had to get a cut and cut pretty short. So this was a classic kind of L.A. story, I think, about right, the, the yeah. lack of imagination. Yeah. Who are you? <laughs> I walked in and they went, What what happened to your hair? Well, I was—I did a show. I put it. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, it's a different look. It's a really different look. You know, and I, I, I was like, uh, oh, okay. So it was my hair, really, you were impressed right. with. You know, not not what I did. but So I knocked around L.A. for for about nine months, you know, and I, I, I put a video together, and I ended yeah. up doing the West Coast premiere of The Grace of Mary Travers in Santa Monica, uh, Harriet Harris. And uh, who was just just fabulous to work with, and uh, you know, and Ursula, my wife now, she was the she was the coach, she was the dialect oh, coach okay. for that show, and uh, that was the first time we worked together. Um, oh, cool! So, anyway, it you know, and and then and one day I, I was living in a like a, an apartment that was about the size of a parking space in Santa Monica, yeah. and uh, I actually right across the street from where Jane Fonda had a house when she was very young in the sixties. Because oh, it was yeah. a block away from the beach, which was very cool, but the yeah. toilet didn't work, and there was all this, you know, <laughs> stuff. Anyway, but going to a foam, a cutout piece of foam that was my bed.
2: Oh, jeez! You know that
1: that that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, and I got a call. The, stuff, the only yeah. thing I
1: had was a phone. I had a, I, 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 you know I had a phone in there, and I got a call because I had done Romeo and Juliet in 1987 in Idaho. And Pat Patton had come to see it and was impressed. And there was a lot of talk about me going to Ashland. And I was sure that I was going to go to Ashland the summer that I ended up being in L.A. Mm. Uh, And then I got a a notice that I wasn't hired. So um, that came as a shock. And Mm. But then Dennis Bigelow gave me a call because he was the artistic director at, at the new offshoot from OSF in Portland, Oregon. Uh, okay. Portland Center Stage, which is yep. what it is now. But uh, it was OSF Portland, and he wanted me, because he had been the production stage manager in Denver, he uh, wanted uh, me to come up to the Miser and and Pericles, which was then going to go,
0: Pericles would go down to Ashland and run in the summer season in the and is Is that how you got more on the radar of the OSF folks through that production? Well, I knew
1: I was on the radar, and it actually came as a shock that I didn't get hired Oh, okay. You know, because Jerry Turner had seen me in Orphans at the Denver Center. And oh, was, okay. Was yeah. really impressed, and you know, so there was there was, and I had had a phone conversation with him, and, and there were people actually to, saying, "Well, you're going to love Ashton. I hear you're going there. I hear you're mm-hmm. going to be cast." Yeah. You know, so it was it was in the in the ether, and then suddenly, no, not not right. not that year, mm-hmm. but the next year they did so.
0: And so, I mean, like, you, you know, at the time and maybe over the years and certainly as you've seen, you know, companies come and go and, and actors come and go, like, were you were you able to distance yourself from the the those feelings of personal rejection that sometimes come up or uh, like, be, you know, because I, I think at a certain point you can have perspective of like, oh, well, just based on the company they have and what they're trying to do, you know, you just didn't fit in this way. Um did you have that perspective at the time or or you know where you, you know how how did you kind of recover from that
1: You know I I never really sweated it
0: much I never really
1: you know I I I just figured the next thing would come
0: Right well I mean I I would it, guess you know based on how much you did as a kid with your mom that it was just like yeah okay you know here's this project or here's the next project like it, it's you know, maybe, I, I don't know if you ever saw her sweat things in terms of, you know, when when's the next project going to come. But, yeah, it just seemed like, I, I guess there could be a sense where it was just, it, you know, there, was, there wasn't there was as much maybe pressure on it because you did it so often. I, I don't know. Would that, does that make sense? I, you know, the next job
1: just always came along, you know. And even in the lean times, I mean, I recently heard somebody use this analogy of Spider-Man. In your okay. career, that you go from building to building using your web, yeah. you know, but there's hang time between the buildings. Sure, and sometimes yeah. that hang time is is longer than it is at other times. Right, you know, which I thought was a, was a was a good analogy for how a, how a career works. You know, yeah, yeah Now, yeah. you know, I, I knew somebody that went to the University of Miami, which is where uh, Faye Dunaway went, and and mm-hmm. was in her class i think and they were at a party you know and they were talking about what they what their careers were going to be or where they were you know that where where do you see yourself in 10 years kind of thing you know now that they were all graduating from the theater school there Mm -hmm. and it got around to faye dunaway and there was a pause and she said so the apocryphal story goes i will do anything anything to be a star and, you know, I think that there's a mentality like that, you know, that, that it doesn't, I, I'm not, you know, fade, uh, not fade that uh, uh, Catherine Hepburn once went out to the group theater, Harold Klerman's group, you know, and sure. Yeah. All of that, you know, and it was at the very beginning and he gave this speech about, you know, what it is to be an ensemble and, you know, that we're all work together to create great theater and, you know, and, and this was in a time when socialism was, you know, very prevalent you know in right, terms of sure. political perspective in the early 30s and then it came around to Catherine Hepburn and she said i don't want no part of this i'm going to be a star and she left <laughs> you know and so so you know there's 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 kind of i think there's this, there, there there is a certain sensibility some stars are are made you know some stars are right. born right. you know they just they're, they're just inherently but you know just target they're not interested in 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 you know, doing that. they just want to be, you know, a right. star. And I, right. you know, I'm not saying that I wouldn't have liked all of that, but it was not it
0: clearly wasn't a priority, right? That that, that those things like um, collaboration and ensemble uh, appeal to you.
1: It did. I always liked the idea that we were all working. I mean, hopefully, we're all oaring together to for to achieve a goal. And sometimes right. it is, and sometimes it isn't, you know. I have very little patience for divas, you know, and people that that need a, a great deal of attention and yeah, a lot right. of maintenance, you know. You know, I mean, I've always felt like, just cowboy up, you know, like, yeah. let's all, get, let's all, you know, make this happen. Let's all work together to make right. this happen. And, you know, I, and I, I feel strongly of, about that, you know. Um, yeah. Did, um,
0: did you ever work uh, uh you know during your professional career with your mom on shows? One time. Really? One time yeah. I, just once.
1: I did yeah. yeah just once because I left you know when I was in my I guess it was you know my early 20s I, I I left and I occasionally came through town and I would be working in town but I'd be working at the Denver Center. Okay. And so I wasn't available to work with my mom, but one year when I was working in Ashland, she was directing *The Secret Cardi at the Arvada Center, and it was in that interim period between closing in Ashland and starting up in January, oh, so okay. it fit yep. perfectly. Yep. And uh, I remember sending a tape, and I played Dickon. I was probably a little old for Dickon, but I, you know, I've always had a youthful energy look. and exuberance. At least yep. I did. <laughs> and, you know, so I went out there, and my older sister was in it, and I stayed with my older sister, and oh, that cool. was the one time that I worked with my mom in a in, a, in an equity show, in a professional show, and, um, you know, I, I could tell that she was nervous about it, and I was... Oh, dur- you know, like I was directing her
0: kids, yeah? Well, yeah, direct, Or specifically yeah, you.
1: Specifically me, because yeah. she had worked with my younger sisters a lot. She had directed yeah. them in a lot of shows. I mean... Okay. Quite a few, because they stayed in Denver and they had done, mm-hmm. but not me. And I had done, you know, I'd worked at a, a lot of theaters, and I, you yeah. know, and so she was, you know, she she was very, you know, was very careful. We were, we, you know, with with each other, and you know, and she she was more careful with me than she ordinarily was with anybody. Yeah. She just, you know, because she she could be pretty, you know, definitive. Yeah. About what she wanted and what people needed to do and but i w- I will always be grateful that I did that and and you know my mom, when she directed it was it was a you could guarantee you could you could you could bet the house on at some point after either a dress rehearsal or a preview she would do she would give the do better speech okay you know you got to buckle down you got to you know you, everybody has to you know and she, it was it was a, a strong pep talk about needing to to work harder and be more focused and more concentrated and i have to say that i have and i'd heard that speech a few times you know when she was directing shows and teaching drama in our basement and i knew she did it for almost every show she ever directed every time i am in a play at some point i hear that speech over my shoulder and i hear you know like You need to concentrate a little more. You need to buckle down. You need to, Mm -hmm. you know,
0: work a little harder. And do you feel like you're a good, like you have a good gauge for yourself of when you're, you know, delivering the goods, so to speak? Like, you know, okay, this, I, you know, are, are you pretty good at staying out of your own way, but then also being honest with yourself in terms of when you're, when you're doing good work?
1: Well, I know when it's good. Yeah. I, I know when it's good. I know when I've got, you know, and there have been a few roles and a few productions where it just was like in the pocket and it was in the yeah. pocket from, from the beginning. I just, I just knew that this was going to, you know, the other thing is uh, I suppose it's a self protective, uh, psychological thing that I, I make less of it. I try and, and, and not, Get caught up in the the anxiety of like we're getting to performance. I mean, it's not to say that I don't get nervous or if I don't I don't you know feel that tension. Sure, of course. But I I, I remind myself it's a play, you know. Like I you know that I'd stand in the lobby of the Shakespeare Santa Cruz, which is out on Navy Pier, and you look out back towards Chicago. Oh, Shakespeare Chicago, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That incredible skyline. Yep, and realize, you know. A drop in the water, of the population of Chicago, is coming to see this tonight. Right, right. It is going to be at the opening tonight. It's not that important. I mean, it is, but but it's it's just a kind of thing where to try and put it in perspective because it's easy yeah. to make it like this is, and it is. I'm not saying it isn't, but it's. But a way of, of, of giving yourself, like, it's not the end of the world. It's not. Right. It's a play. We're going to tell this story tonight, and we want to tell it the best way that we can. Right. You know, on the same, but on the same, I've known oftentimes this is bad.
0: This is not oh. good. <laughs> this like is for not, you, you know, your personal work. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know what this is,
0: but <laughs> this ain't working, you know? And like, did you finish runs that way? Like, you just never were able to crack it.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes you know, depending on casting, and because it's rotating rep, you get cast in a role you're just wrong for. Okay, yeah. You know, you're just not probably the the right best choice. You're the, but yeah. you're a choice. You know. Yeah. And so you know, you you give it your best shot, but it's it's hard not to not to uh, know that. You know, that's, that's a sort of thing like, boy, you know, uh, this is not a good fit. This really isn't a good fit. Uh, but I'm, you know, I gotta, I gotta
0: find some way through this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I got, yeah. And you do, you know, I mean, you know, it's usually a smaller part. So it's right, not, right. As big a demand, you know, uh, and certainly wasn't Ashland, you know, and, you know, the, the, the hard thing in Ashland and anybody who's ever been in Ashland, uh, will tell you this is when you know well first of all you only get two previews in Ashland which was wow. just nonsense because that's actually a third of the process right you know so so and then it's locked in and mm-hmm. it's very hard you know it does you know stretch a little bit good yeah. stage managers up there won't keep a lock on it they they they'll understand where things need to you know need to expand and where they don't you know yep but when you're in a show for example that opens in late February in the Bomer and runs until the second week or the, through the first week uh, or almost to the end of October. And
0: you know it's just, it's not good. That's
1: hard. Yeah. That's a hard one.
0: Yeah, I mean, as as a young actor, I remember Ashland represented kind of a pinnacle of, of getting cast there. And I, I auditioned in LA a couple times, I think. As far as I know, never even got close. Um, there was one guy I know who did, work, I think, at least one season there, you know, a, a younger actor in the company. But I think it was like a few years later that I I thought about the process, and especially as a young actor, well, what would I be playing up there? I'm, you know, I'm not going to be cast as Hamlet or another lead role like my first season, especially as an unknown actor. And and I think I realized I would probably go insane, you know, for, for being up there, That that it just wasn't, I don't think it was a fit for me to be, you know, locked into that kind of format. I mean, it just, it just, I think it takes the right kind of mentality of like, okay, I'm going to do it. And, but I think for me, you know, doing the same show and doing the same bit parts for, you know, 10 months, I think would drive me insane, which is I know why a lot of people do kind of other creative things while they're up there and they get into all other things. But yeah, I think it just, it, it, it takes the right kind of personality to do that stuff.
1: Yeah, there was a joke, you know, it's like Ashland is a place where you go to dry out or to become a drunk. <laughs> because, the you know, it it was the only game in town, you know. I mean, it was right, rare. Right. That you got, maybe you might be able to go to Portland or go to San yeah, Francisco because right. you had a couple of days off, but it became the be-all and end-all, you know, it was like a right. doom You know, you'd go right. up yeah, there thinking yeah. you're going to be there for a season and then 10 years go by. Yeah, wow. Well, you know, and you bought a house and you're, you know, and right. all you talk about. I mean, th- that's another joke is that you'd get together for a dinner party and say, okay, we're not going to talk about OSF at all tonight, right? <laughs> you just howl, you know, because yeah, that's yeah, all yeah. you talked about. Right. And people would your- come up to you from the outside world talking about places they were working or things they were doing, and you'd kind of give them the thousand-yard stare, you know? Yeah, <laughs> wow. Uh-huh. Because, you know, it, it was yeah. all so self-contained up right. there, you know. Um, Sounded like working on the moon
0: or something, right, yeah.
1: And so, you know, there, there was a t- I, I can remember being there, you know, because I did two long stints. My first stint was, I think, six years or seven years, and I did another six years. Wow. When Ursula and I came, went back up there, you know. Yeah. And so it was 14 seasons altogether, as it turned out. Yeah, wow. And, I mean, the the... A guaranteed income over a long period of time is very attractive, you know? Course, and I was yeah. getting better casting as as, yep. as it went along. But I can remember thinking to myself, particularly in the first stint, when I was in my early 30s, mid-30s, around there, turned, you know, 40. Like, if I'm going to go to L.A., I better go. If I, If I'm going to want to work in television, I can't yep. stay here. Right. There are a couple of, you know, this famous, you know, Colin McLaughlin story that he was working in Ashland when he sent a tape for to David Lynch, you know, for Dune. And they okay. flew him down there and they did a screen test and he got the part and he didn't even have an agent. He said, I, 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 Does anybody know anybody that I can maybe <laughs> represent me? You know, you know, then that, you know, Dennis Arndt did, you know, he create he had a huge film and television career coming out of there, but it, it was, yeah, you know, Gene Smart was another one. You know, yeah uh, wow. that that was that was a real rarity. You right. know, people didn't work in television who stayed in national.
0: Yeah, and Tony, Tony would be another kind of anomaly too. That that he would was- well, and T-
1: Tony he he made that choice though. He yeah. had already done Silence of the Lambs, and you know yeah, he right he was already an established. He
0: was that guy. Yeah. you know, but uh, but I would imagine it would take some. I don't know if courage is the right word, but, but to tell your agents, I'm going to Ashland to do theater for a year and, you know, we're not doing, I'm not doing, you know, I mean, that's just, it's, it's, it's great that he had that choice, but what executed it too.
1: Yeah, no, Tony could do that because Tony already had established himself as, as, I mean, Tony had, he had that guy status. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they didn't. They couldn't name his name, but they they the audience recognized him. And within the Los Angeles and the world of of Los Angeles, he was an industry name.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: He was an industry name on Broadway and in New York, Mm -hmm. and an industry name in L.A. And chose to come to Ashland because he wanted to do theater.
2: Yeah. You know,
1: and he and he loved that that area. And uh, you know, so so he could fly down to L.A. or he could send a tape. Mm. You know, for for whatever it is and you know he could continue to and and organize a a a career with you know osf you know to shoot things and then sure. come back to ashland and so you know he had he had already established a career most of the people up in ashland
0: hadn't established a career right. you know right it, it a, a multiple multimedia career sure um you know, you had mentioned that that kind of uh, Spider-Man thing of the hang time between buildings. And, you know, jumping forward to kind of the, the present day, you know, I know the pandemic hit a lot of artists and actors very differently. And so I was curious what, you know, because you were still working very steadily uh, in theater, you know, uh, up through 2019 and, and all that kind of stuff and, and had projects planned for 2020 and maybe even beyond – but what were some of your challenges during the pandemic, during that that hang time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had I was in rehearsal for the homecoming at North Coast Rep. We were a weekend to rehearsal. I had we had been talking. Um, it looked like, although I ha- hadn't had the offer yet, but it probably would have. They were uh, at the Globe. They were going to be taping the shrew, and I know the director and I talked to her in Chicago about it. And a good chance I was going to play Baptista. I'd okay. had a really good audition with uh, Danny Sullivan, okay. for Henry Five, for the chorus in in New York. No, it was going to be at the Globe as well. Oh, so okay, okay. It would have been those those two. Oh, things. wow, cool. Um, yeah, and you know, I was actually doing uh, a little more on camera auditions, you know, through my agents, the Great Talent agent out of sh- Chicago, mm-hmm. and it all came to you know, it's just screeching halt in, in an instant. You know, all of that. And, you know, it was, it was tough. I mean, you know, because it, and I knew that it was, that that the landscape was going to change dramatically Mm -hmm. and didn't know when it was going to open up. Now I'm going to start rehearsals for Homecoming, but, uh, you know, and I mean, thanks to you, I also did some, you know, uh, directed a couple of Shakespeare scenes and acted in one, you know, and, uh. I did a one man Christmas carol uh for North Coast Rep which was fun to do um with David uh and mm-hmm. and so that was you know it was fun to to film that right. but subsequently actually 2001 I I haven't worked at all for 2021 um, you mean yeah yeah 2021 yeah so you know I'm 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 looking forward to this project coming up but it you know it was daunting it's also uh, you reach a certain age and, you know, I know I'm getting older. I've had a, I had a series of auditions here that I was, uh, maybe have aged out of.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, I don't know. It could have been, maybe right. that I would, I, you know, it wasn't any good, but you know, it was, it, that was, that was interesting. You know, it's, I'm moving into a, you know, a different, um, maybe a different slot, but you know, I mean, I suppose that's, you know, friends of mine that have, you know, that are, we're all of an age and all came up at the same time and all worked in regional theater through the course of our careers for the most part with some television and some film stuff, you know, but certainly not famous. And we've, we talk about, you know, how long do you think you're going to be chasing this? How long do you, you want to be doing this? And, and I say, you know, I mean, well, until I can't do it anymore. Really? I mean, I still get excited by the, by the challenge of figuring it out, you know, of putting it together, of like, what is happening with this guy? You know, Mm -hmm. you know, what's the arc? What's the journey? What's, you know, and how do we orchestrate that? So as long as I can still do it and I you know, remember the lines and all that stuff, I will. So, you know, am I vision of the future coming out of the pandemic is is very positive okay
0: so yeah you're in the place of potentially viewing you know that there is a next phase of your career and 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 not only types of character roles but what you're what you're doing and and it seems like that's all kind of you know you're you're in the process of figuring all that out now of like what what is the next phase of your career going to look like not only in terms of what you're playing but what you're what you're doing but the the intention the desire is is still there just to keep doing it
1: yeah I mean my intention is you know as I hear more about what theaters are opening up and what seasons are being chosen is to put feelers out you know I, I've contacted Brian Vaughn at Utah Shakes and you know they're doing The Tempest and Lear and I you know I said those are two that are on my list pal right you know i right. have already played uh,
0: Gloucester right
1: I played Gloucester, you know, and so I'm not getting any younger. So this might be the the season, you know. So, whatever I may think about my career being over, or you know, when I in my darker moments, when I, you know, going like, oh, geez, you know, it's probably this is it, you know. Well, I wouldn't be reaching out if I, right, if I wasn't interested in, you know, continuing to, to pursue. So,
0: right. It, well, and and I know you and I have had other conversations about. Just the 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 DEI the diversity uh, uh, equity and inclusion kind of, for lack of a better term, thing that that we're all becoming much more aware of on the theatrical landscape and and you know just like your place as a, as an artist and as specifically as a white artist going okay where where do I fit in you know in this in this new landscape not saying that there isn't a, a spot for you but just that we're all becoming more aware of all the other artists out there
2: yeah
1: you know and and i absolutely support you know the the uh the change in aesthetic in the landscape and the opening up of opportunities for people of color in every way in every capacity and i do think well you know i have been the uh, beneficiary of that kind of privilege in my career being you know, having the skin color that I have, and I'm of an age now where it, you know, if I give up or I lose something to somebody of, of color, I, I, I'm okay with that. I, you know, I, I support it. Mm-hmm. You know, it may limit my, you know, casting possibilities over, you know, as I in the latter part of my career. But so be it. You know, it's it's been a long time coming. So there's that. I also, you know, I mean, I'm interested in directing as well. So, you know, the Donald Margulies piece that I remember seeing in New York years ago called Found a Peanut, which is about a group of kids in a project in Brooklyn, and they find some money. It's in 1963. But uh, I remember Robert Joy was the central character. He's an eight-year-old. Peter McNichol was a five-year-old. Little oh, Earl okay, yeah. and Evan Handler was yep. in the, in the cast. And, you know, it was really, it's, it's actually quite a profound piece about how they find money and what it does to the, mm. uh, as an allegory. Right. To their, you know, their friendships and how it tests right. them. And, um, and the cool thing about it is it's adults that actually play kids. They're not playing at being kids. Oh, you have to really yep, get yep. them, you know, really explore the idea of being kids you know, so the, the casting requirements are, are, are very kind of challenging,
0: yeah. but, but I'm interested in, in doing that because I remember being quite moved by it. And so, yeah, well, I mean, that, that sounds like a, that sounds like a really unique challenge and, uh, yeah, I hope you, I hope you get to do it, you know, in the near future. Me too. Me too. I, I remember you said there was a, there was a quote from Hamlet that, that you kind of think of often that, that you, that, that comes to mind often, which quote was that?
1: I got to bring it up. <laughs> oh,
0: okay. <laughs> Hold on a second. Let me. All
1: right, I'll cut this. Let me get off.
0: it. And I, and I was just curious, more like how you know you interpret it in terms of a quote to live by, more than necessarily like how you would work on it as an actor.
1: Yeah, you know, I I just I I I, th- I think about it. You know, it's a an adage that you I need to remind myself about sometimes because. As one does is that they sometimes can get caught up in the past too much that can lead to, you know, sentiments of regret or, you know, yeah. around you and, and in your circumstances. And, um, you know, to try and live in the present, you know, to try, which is what you want to do, interestingly enough, when you're acting, you know, yeah. uh, so that you're, you're in the present and you know it's funny because whenever anybody goes up you know it's usually because they're thinking too far ahead right you know they'll they'll jump to a line and then that they, that they'll they come back to you know try and come back to the line that they're
0: actually supposed to speak and you know so right. then you're you're up you know do you, do you have the quote in front of you i think it's act 5 scene 2 yeah
1: oh here we go not a wit i defy augury yeah well i mean this is well yeah so if i mean if you if you don't mind just like just, it, reading it, the quote it, and that. It, 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 it yeah sure i mean it encapsulates you know the idea of carpe diem and also mm-hmm. to stay in the moment and you know you know not a whit we, we defy augury there is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow if it be now it is not to come if it be not to come It will be now. Be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Since no man of aught he leaves knows what is to leave betimes, let be. You know, it's just uh, the readiness is all, you know. It's like sort of like, you know, recently I've heard somebody say that when you look around your house and you see what's there, Ask yourself the question, if you die tomorrow, would you want a relative to have to clean this up? To have to deal with this? <laughs> yeah. And you, you know, you there's there's something to that. You know, it's like uh uh what you know, what is the priority? What is, you know, um right. are are you know, are you for what whatever that might be, you know, I mean, the readiness is all can apply to
0: so much so many things you know it, you know it's funny i don't have kids but i i just kind of immediately got this uh image in my head of like it sounds like a good family call like when we're all trying to go out the door like you know the readiness is all like you know like if you're in the car you're in the car if you're not you're not yeah, like that's right that's right
1: you can't be su- kind of ready you know, yeah. you can't well, like, oh, be, oh, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm yeah. almost ready. Well, no, yeah. the oh, readiness yeah. is all, Yeah, you know, when you're ready, you're ready. Jacket. Yeah. Yeah. Like, are you prepared for this audition? Ready. Are you really prepared? Right. Are you
0: ready? Yeah. It's, it, right. Exactly. It's like, like well, I kind of sort of know the lines. It's like, no, either you know them or you don't. Oh, or, you don't. Are you, know, you ready
1: for this rehearsal? Did you prepare for yeah. this? Re- Do you know, yeah. are you coming into this rehearsal with a point of view? You know, yeah. Yeah. With, ready to work? You know, or are you going to kind of fake it, you know, and fudge it or let somebody else, you know, lead you, you know, I mean, having a point of view is, is, has everything to do with the readiness. Right. And the readiness in this business is all in, in, in in theater or film or television, you know, it's like, you can't go into a network audition, you
0: know, work, you know, when you go in and meet network, you better be ready. Yeah. (laughs) Jamie, this was great. I really, really appreciate all your time, man. And maybe someday, you know, we we can play some tennis and and you can just uh, whip whip me around the court, you know, know, know try to teach me a thing or two. Yeah, I'd love to. I didn't know you were a tennis player. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I, I, I played in high school and I've been, I've been trying to, you know, dust off the cobwebs and, and shake out the rust a little bit. And, uh, you know, some things are coming back, but, uh, you know, your, your body's like, Hey, you're not in high school anymore. I don't, I don't don't want to shock you, but, uh, you know, so, but it's okay. It's coming back. I'm, I'm actually, I feel like I'm, I'm learning to be a smarter player where it's like, you know, just get the ball back, you know, make the other guy. That's right. Yeah. Set up a point and, you
1: know, let them make the mistake if right. you get the ball back then it's up to them
0: right i mean I, I i can still hit hard but it's like right it's it's that more just you know if 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 it's a rally of 8 points and you can hit it back 7 times but they can only hit it back 6 you win you know like that's it that's right that's exactly right yeah 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 oh, cool well i i will i will attempt to be ready for all if if and when <laughs> we play tennis
1: well, I would love to. I'd love to play. I, I really, really, I play like three times a
0: week. So. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. You're really going to mop the corner. No, you. Right.
1: man. I, I, you've got
0: like 20, at least 20 years on me or more, you know, 30 hey, years I, on I me. I've I've been playing some guys like literally in their upper seventies. One guy's 80. And I don't know how they do it. They get everything back to me, so they're even more consistent than I am. And they have me running all over the court. And of course, I sometimes feel bad of like making them run all over the court because I'm like, I don't want to see, it. I don't want to hurt them. But they're like, no, 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 bring it on, bring it on. But but they're like, they're they're giving me a good run for my money. So you That's know, cool. age age doesn't have anything to do with it necessarily. So all right. But uh, anyway, it was great chatting with you. I really appreciate it, man.
1: I do too, man.
0: Hey there, this is Nathan one more time. Thanks so much for checking out the episode today. Please remember to subscribe so you don't miss anything ahead. If you enjoy what you've heard, please let others know. Write a review, post on social media, send an email, tell your entire acting class, or just a friend. I sincerely appreciate it. You can tag us at W.A.J. Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. We're also on Facebook and YouTube. I'd love to hear what you think of the show. Be sure to check out WorkingActorsJourney.com for our show notes with additional info and links mentioned in this episode, as well as all the episodes. We've got 25 plus interviews and 12 plus workshop presentations. Sign up for the email list so you're the first to hear about upcoming projects, workshops, and much, much more. Thanks again to today's guest and to everyone that makes these episodes possible. And a special thanks to you for listening. I'm Nathan Agan and enjoy the journey.